People, I'm Lizzie Metham and this is People My Dog Would Like where I get to speak to interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future. Today my guest is Tia Kansara. Tia is an author, speaker and is the founder of Replenish Earth and co-director of Kansara Hackney, the first ISO certified sustainable lifestyle consultancy in the world. She chairs the Sandbox Global Community and is the UCL Bartlett's Ambassador to the Gulf Region, advisor of the Economic Times of India, as well as a visiting professor at the Centre of Environment Planning and Technology India. Her recent work involves providing city governments with her concept of replenish, a per capita assessment of ecosystem services, as well as publishing her first book, Replenish. Replenish Cities is about giving more back than we take from nature. Rather than sustaining the status quo, they banish waste and create movements through lifestyles that are pro-nature. Tia has just been awarded an honorary fellowship with Reba for the amazing work she's doing influencing design and impacts on the built environment and is also partnering with Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Centre, Gift City and Mazda City. She has travelled to over 80 countries to share the World Replenish Index and recently launched the Replenish Business Canvas at MIT Media Labs. You can see her talking about her future of cities and how to create societies that have a better relationship with nature in one of her many TED Talks. Welcome to the show, Tia. That thank you very much. Hello, Liz. <laughs> hello, everybody. Hello, hello. So how are you finding Melbourne? You're oh, I here love for it. A very, a oh, the weather is great. It kind of reminds me of London. You know, yeah. one minute it's sunny, the next minute it's windy, the next minute it's raining. Four seasons and it was so day. funny, I had a meeting this morning at the Financial Review and as I was coming out, uh, Ben Potter actually said, oh, it's raining, it might get worse. And I was like, you know what? I'm used to it. Yeah, you do really have to take a brolly with you, but if you know, if you can get some cover, you're fine. <laughs> so listen, tell me, tell me a little bit about Replenish. Tell me about what you've been doing here. You know, you've clearly just been in Adelaide. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Absolutely. So my trip to Australia has been Sydney, Uluru, Adelaide, and now Melbourne. Um, I was originally called to do an energy roundtable and discussion on the state of, of energy in Australia, but also abroad, where I've done my PhD on the built environment in Abu Dhabi, and it's been related to the energy sector. Okay. Um, and then, aside from that, Adelaide invited me to the Open State Festival. That mm. was the festival that has been a really interesting, it's the second year for it, but it's really opening the eyes of the public and what the what number of different people are doing in a complete cross-section of society. Mm. So they brought in some people like myself from abroad who are doing some very, very different things, but one of the sectors that they're looking at is sustainability, and I believe I fit into that. Yes. And the idea is to go into what makes the sustainable revolution possible, considering in the 2015 report for South Australia, Jay Witherell has actually suggested that they go one step further and do carbon neutral. Okay. And so they've got about 48% of their renewable energy coming from wind and solar combined. And, and it's, it's, it's a huge, it's, it's a, a huge, huge undertaking. undertaking, but I think also since I've been in the news about Elon's uh, challenge and the bet that he had, and he's going to do it in a hundred days and Absolutely. it's really awakened people to what's happening. So that's, that's Adelaide. 
Um, and here in here in Melbourne, I had a debate with Toby Kent, who's the Chief Resilience Officer, uh, one of Melbourne. the 100 yeah. cities around the world that has taken on the Rockefeller Challenge of resilience. Mm. And yesterday at the town hall, we talked about a whole range of things, one of them being the uh, Resilience Index, which is what they've launched with their report, but also a measurement scheme of 50 plus indicators that go into detail of what makes a city resilient. Mm. But some of the real core challenges of what does a householder in Melbourne experience, and there were, of course, parents there talking about their children and, and trying to understand how they can relate it back to their children, how they can educate their children, what is it that they need to do at home to get them ready mm. for whatever it is that's coming. So on the one side, my work is to provide inspiration with a dictionary mm. of examples across the world of people not talking about it, but doing it, yeah. including myself. But on the other hand, is also to challenge those that feel afraid or insecure with some of the changes that are coming in. So this is seen as the new economy. I was having a chat with small giants, Dumbo Feather, and the issue that we're going to be putting together in May, talking about the kind of the realities of what this new economic shift is going to bring for us. So it's really readying ourselves, but it's also the different kinds of technology that are coming and entering not just our market, but our lives, and how that shifts both how we prepare for that in the future and how we have this conversation now. Mm. So when, say, autonomous vehicles come on the scene, it's not a surprise, we knew about it. We've had this discussion. We're we've decided what it. we're going to do about it. Hey, look, Holden Plant is going to be closing in Adelaide. This mm. is what we've done to prepare. Mm. So it's not here's a surprise, but here's our plan. So I know a lot of the work that you're doing is in the advocacy space, particularly with governments around the world in their policy space. But you know, I don't know whether you're aware of the saying. I'm sure you are. That you know, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. For breakfast. <laughs> and so knowing that we are literally a nation of consumers and a world of consumers that has been pushed on us for many decades now, how, you know, that's a massive challenge, isn't it? What, how, do you, how do you feel you can, you know, talk about that challenge and, and what can we do about it? You talk about those daily things that we can do, but it is a huge challenge. It is, and I think... The challenge is not one person's, it's all of ours and we have to do it together. Mm. So it's really an encouragement more than a soul journey of Jesus for 40 days in the desert. And I think that's where there is a, there's almost like a, a negative spin on the way that we, that we uh, cooperate with one another in order for us to inspire one another to do that. What do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is traditionally competition is, is used as a one versus the other, mm. rather than we're gonna work on this together. So cooperation has has no real, there's, there's no real sort of association to competition mm. that relates to cooperation. Whereas in Greek, there are two words for competition, agonismos, sin agonismos. The point being that it's not me versus you, we're gonna kill each other. But we're actually, so there's one that survives but it's this ability to actually challenge one another so that the game wins. Mm. It's like basketball. You play a better game, you, tra you train hard, you work hard, you, know, you, you challenge yourself, you train better so that you, when you're playing the game, the, op the opponent is challenged, but it's a game that wins because the game gets better. So it's the yeah, interdependent aspects that win. And I think in society, even as culture, 
dictates there are values at the center of that mm. but it's very difficult because we've all got very different cultural triggers and we're triggered by certain historical events we're triggered by the way that society interacts with us with all of our cultural sort of triggers from the past of where we've come from mm. and especially with Australia a place where so many different cultures have become what Australia calls an Australian yeah there Absolutely. is a, a multitude of these triggers that are like you know click 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 and all of a sudden you're sort of you're stuck in the center of this place with this this idea that you you want to have non-violent communication that you want to help you want to participate you want to participate but you don't know the framework and you don't have the language context mm. and all the, you don't have the values in the center of all of this vision that relates to all of us and so what happens i think is many a time we don't think in terms of an ecosystem we think in terms of a silo project mm. we think in terms of initiative initiative it's just like we're going to do this one little thing yep. but it relates with nobody else you know and so so how is the work you're doing building that network kind of creating that web that people right. feel that there's an interconnectedness right one of the things that i i call myself is a an ecosystem designer um many people say that you know are you an architect i'm not i'm not a qualified architect i haven't been to 7 years of architecture school second thing is that you know i'm aware that there are serious challenges and because i'm multidisciplinary mm. i come from an economics degree i had no idea of economics before i did that i did the international baccalaureate and then i went into an economics degree i also then went into architecture and urban planning with a business and then further into the environmental sciences and guess what now into leadership business education business model thinking so there's so many different disciplines that I've already been exposed to but mm. also what we're doing is not translating it into disciplines what we're doing is translating it into a discipline not disciplines so living an an eco-friendly lifestyle isn't just the job of an academic it's also the job of a business person it's also the job of a householder it's also the job of a glassmaker so everybody mm. all across the board has this challenge so what i'm trying to do right now is just translate it all i'm doing is translating it into the language and the context of these disciplines so whether it's in the art whether it's in education whether it's in architecture whether it's in business mm. whether it's in governance i'm trying my best to translate that into the language of the people that would understand it because their expertise calls for a particular kind of language where they would understand and appreciate yeah. that yeah. so for example with replenish one would say well what does that what does replenish and the economy have to do with an art installation in goa mm. so i'm using my creativity and that creativity is exploring what you can do with visual immersive experience design i strongly sense that the reason why i don't know about some of the things that i don't know about is because perhaps i'm in a community or an echo chamber and or a network and i've got very specific privileges one would say privileges others wouldn't it's mm. all relative mm. but those things that i have and the experiences that i have are related to what i do on a daily basis now mm. if i can put you into a circumstance where you would think and feel differently and it's really a body experience when you go and walk into the street of paris yes you can assign houseman's architecture urban plans road designs the military but the first thing that you experience is it's sensation isn't it walking down the street experiencing yeah. 
what the city feels like. Mm. What does it feel like to me? And this experience colors all of my work. Mm, okay. So very, very intuitive it's as well tangible. as sensate. Yeah, very it's like tactile. Give people the experience mm. and then give them language that they can use. Mm. Many a time we have these experiences but we don't know how to put them into words. Yeah. You go into a room and you're like, mm, this good. doesn't feel good. The yeah, mojo I, don't, doesn't I don't really work. don't like it. Yeah, but you can't quite work out what it is. But that what do I put work. that? How do I put that into words? And then, if it were an architect, how do I put that into words and then assign a different kind of design to the buildings? Mm. How do you reflect? What are the words that you use to reflect consciously on this circumstance? Mm. I had a very interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago with Mark Wolf, who's one of the principals of Hassel Studio, one of the largest architectural master planners in Australia and uh, Adam Scott who heads up Free State UK and they've formed a partnership all around not placemaking but all around what it is that is the human experience of whatever is built around them, the ecosystem. And it's very in line with what you're talking about. So it sounds like in some ways the world is starting to catch up with what we've all wanted for a long time, which is that why aren't we looking at the people that are using these spaces, that are people that are walking down the Paris street, that are people that are, they were talking about the second Sydney airport. Why is it just, why are airports so boring? You spend hours there, you spend years there, and it's not, it's not human, you know. So in a way what I'm hearing you say is you're wanting to come back to nature, but you're also wanting to come back to being what, it, what is essentially human about walking down those spaces and in these places. Exactly. So the other thing I was thinking about was, listen, you're relatively young, let's be honest, you've had a remarkable journey so far. I call it an adventure. Sounds the adventure fabulous. 80 continues. countries already is fabulous. <laughs> so uh, tell me about some of the influences that you've had in your life that have kind of led you into this space. Have you got all day? <laughs> uh, well, we've only got a few minutes, so you'll have to be short and sharp there, Oh, too. my God, you're being tough. Well, I'd lo I, I always love that. I, I always love a personal journey and a personal story for listeners. I think it's great that we can talk about all of the strategy and policy and advocacy work you do, and it's fabulous, and I'll put those in the show notes. But what I think is really, you know, interesting to people is you being a human and you being a woman you you working in the space that you do. It's funny because I was just having a chat with Holly Ransom just, just yeah. now and one of the things that came up was A, pedagogy and how people are educated and the tool, toolkits that we use. Mm -hmm. B, being a woman and what that means in society but also the age group that we are and the generation that, we, that we're part of, right? Yeah. The, the, the time in, and space that we occupy as individuals that can make choices and where we are in the grand scheme of society and where society has developed. It's only a hundred years ago that women were allowed for the very first time, you know, to, well, I would say even a hundred years ago, we weren't allowed to go to university. So within the space yeah, of a hundred years, we basically created this whole new area. I mean, we've got PhDs, we're running across, you know, um, all sorts of different interdisciplines we're in the sciences we're in you know engineering and architecture and well, you're pursuing all of these your dreams right and i think i think this is what it is it's like the biggest influences on me are my place and the people that i've met and some of the conversations that i've had but i'm going to talk about conversations because it's very easy for you to listen to any of the other recordings of people asking me about who are the main three mentors in your life and you'll mm. find out about those right mm. but the the thing that people never talk about are the questions that have led you 
yeah. and the conversations that you've had. And I think the biggest influences for me have been incredible moments of synchronicity where you've come across a conversation you did not expect to have. And it's where two people's lives collide. It's where the, the, the reality of their existence is put into words. And those words, I mean, it's the first time that I have to put a way that I'm feeling to somebody. And they listen, they're like responding and saying, well, isn't it this, isn't it this? And it's that moment where you start to form a question. And I think that has been the biggest influence on my life. It's either reading little bits in magazines or reading quotes of people that have been in similar situations, reading a line of poetry that can mean something to you then, which 10 years ago wouldn't have made any sense. Sure. It's like so it's those, place as well. It, it's like place those moments where you, know, you listen to what's happening around you, listen to the kind of the in-between messages. Listen to what people are talking about without them having to say it. Listening to spaces and nudges. When you go into a city, I remember this one time, I found this so bizarre. I'm cycling in London with my Brompton, and it's one of my first times whilst I'm at university doing my PhD. And I'm cycling down the road and I'm like, I know I need to go to this one direction. I kind of roughly know how to get there. And there's a huge nudge to go left. And I've never so, been down that street before, ever, in my yeah, life. Right. I have no reason to go down the street. Mm. It's massive nudge, which is take a left turn, take a left turn. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake, I'll take the left turn. So I start cycling and I get to the place that I need to get to. It just there happens to be, you know, on the street that I need to be. And I, I stop and I'm like, how did I know that? Yeah, I didn't right. know that. Did I know that? How did I come across it? I didn't have a Google Maps in my head. No, I no. was going to go that way. What was that nudge? And I think we all have these nudges. And many of us decide that we're not good, but that we're going to ignore them. Yeah. But I've started to trust them. And I think from that one point in 2010, where I got this ridiculous nudge to take a left turn on a Brompton bicycle, I'm like minding my own business, and then I get knocked in the head with this thought. And I'm like, where do these things come from? I think when I'm listening to you, what I'm hearing is you're very present. That you aren't in the future and that you're not in the past. You're very aware of who you are while you're riding that bike. And you're very aware of being open to opportunities and being open to adventures. That's what I'm hearing you say when you say things like that. I would definitely say that one of my biggest values is the sense of adventure, the unknown and the complexity yeah. that it brings because you have no idea. We have no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm the daughter of a very Indian family that live a very Indian way mm. in their own context. But the funny thing is that, and this is, I think, something that my mom never realized, was that her mentality of living in a village, getting married to my father after knowing him for two days, traveling to the UK, never having a word of English in her vocabulary when she arrived on the first flight that she took away from India. I mean, that's inspiring in itself. That's amazing. Mm. What she never realized was that her way of doing things was the village way right yeah okay it was so different to what everybody else was doing in england mm. that for me she was already breaking rules yeah sure she according to her these are the rules that one should live by but she was breaking rules in england mm. right she was recycling things people weren't recycling in the 1980s when i was growing up you didn't have like you know recycle centers that nobody like nobody paid any attention to them now it's like a legal requirement to separate all of your goods, yeah. right? But she was recycling from day one. Interesting. She would say, no, 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 that don't throw that away. You can reuse that. Yeah, and so, so her way, as well. Her way of doing things was so different mm. that when she did things, she taught me that one was able to be 
a rebel. <laughs> and because she taught me that, even though it was funny, because later on I learned how to be rebellious with whatever was the norm through her. And then it's funny because now I'm rebellious in the Indian sense, but not in the British sense. What do you mean and by all, that? You know, like, as far as she's concerned, you know, one should be married at the age of 25 with children, oh, prams yeah. that you're running around the with. Cultural like, norms. Cultural norms and, and the way that society runs in India, in that village, for example, is a way that one should live. But she lived so differently from the should be in England at the time when I was growing up in the 80s that that already added two different ways of doing things. And because I grew up with two different ways of doing things, including my father's way, which is a Kenyan way, there okay. were three different opportunities that I had. No way was right, no way was wrong. There were just three different ways. And so from a really young age, not only was it being exposed to that language, but it was yeah. exposed to what is right and wrong. Yeah, okay. Who defines right and wrong? Who does define right and wrong? <laughs> Do you think people know? I mean, it was interesting. I was listening to uh, a talk that you gave and it was very interesting to talk about human beings as a species. Right. And that they know, they're the only species that really do know that what they're doing might not be okay. So it's like, how do you define what is right and wrong these days? I remember when I was in Japan and, you know, like in England, if you're walking down the street, you come across a person, you might say, oh, it's really bad weather. And you giggle about it. And a little bit of negative speak actually then leads to a great conversation afterwards. It's almost like an icebreaker. But in Japan, you would never do that. It seems complaining. Oh, and so I, I was depressed the first three months that I was in Japan. I couldn't handle it. I wanted to go home. I'm really glad that I had friends who would literally call me and say, no, 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 this is what you wanted to do all along. Just stick it out. Stick it out. And I did. Mm. And it helped me tremendously. But initially, I had a huge culture shock. I didn't realize what culture shock was until yeah. I got to Japan. I mean, I've had culture shock since I was born. I'm sure my mum's been through culture shock as well, coming course, into England, yeah. right? But the culture shock that I experienced when I was in Japan was there is no right and wrong. You think and, and, and you act in very different ways to the way that I do. And no one is right or wrong in what you're doing. Mm. So who gets to dictate that? Nobody does. But it's an ex the acceptance of the rights and the wrongs of other people's cultures. And I think coming back to the culture, we have never been at a time in our lives where so many cultures have come together, where so many people are living together, even though we don't knock on the neighbor's door, that we are still living together, whether we, we are, we're online, talking to somebody from Venezuela and playing on Sudoku, or whether we are on Facebook, chatting with somebody that has been introduced to us on the other side of the planet that we must meet when we go there. It's, the, the idea of the globe, we as humans, and the way that we communicate has, has taken a huge hit. We've been challenged with the language that, that we're being introduced to. What English is like one medium, but there's so many other languages out there now we're being exposed to them. They're all coming online. Another maybe three billion people will come online, then what? What, what impact do you think that's having on local communities, that digital influence that we all now have so we may be parts of global communities we talked about it a bit yesterday didn't we yeah you know what is it that you feel it, what impact is it having on just local communities where i think you know resilience is going to be key i think the on um, if i look at the village in india that i'm working with at the moment where introducing different kinds of you know low technologies, low tech that is really easy for them to use but also allows them 
to live a replenished lifestyle from the start. So instead of going into this huge, you know, consumer-driven focus, which is what they would normally do as mm. they start earning money, they start to put money towards consumer items like televisions and fridges and things like that. Yeah. Um, partially because they want to feel that they're part of this cultural shift. But on the other hand, it's living a kind of a lifestyle that is in tune with nature is almost like a privilege as well. And it's funny because we're, we've, we've got this whole cultural shift of consumerism Keeping up with the Joneses is one example, mm. but that's what we've been doing, and now we're learning that we need to live in harmony with nature. So we're introducing, as an add-on, this whole concept of recycling and upcycling and things like that. So what should we buy? Where are we getting our things mm. from? How should we be aware of the ingredients on the backs of the packages that we're that we're purchasing? So, but in, in but in this village, they, for them, because the the touch points for them in society is very very different. For them, the touch point in society is the person that comes to deliver something in the village. The touch point is, you know, the the doctor that they go and walk to for ten kilometers. Mm. So there, the the influence that they have on the village is very very different. And I think this is a very interesting time. Who and where are the influences in the village? In the village, where is it that they would watch a TV program? It's really interesting for such a long time in Bhutan. They banned the entrance of a television. They did not want TV to be introduced to society. And I believe in the 1990s, they introduced television for the first time. And it's interesting because now there are all of these other cultures that enter the Bhutanese market, which weren't part of either their own culture or their own influence and their own needs and wants. So needs and wants and desires are created by somebody like Jay-Z walking down with like a gold chain. And it's an interesting concept because the respect that is given to Jay-Z or the Kardashians in comparison to the respect that is given to, let's say, you know, a spiritual leader. You or know, the village and, elder. And the village elder or the panchayat in like the villages in India. So it's a very interesting shift in the dynamic of where the influences are and who is it, who is it that, that relates to them in their language. So, so who are the influences here in Australia? Oh, wow. What do you think? I mean, I, I, it's hard, isn't I, it? I, for one... You talk about the celebrity culture. Right. I, for one, I'm not well informed to know that. Mm. Um, so definitely, I think, huge I'm certainly political. mindful of it when I think about tipping points. When you think about the tipping points of how you know, culture does eat strategy, and you think you want the strategy to work, you want Replenish to be out there working, and you're thinking... What are those tipping points that are going to be nudged by influences? Who are those influences? Are they networks of people? Are they specific people? Are they politicians? You know. I think they're people who I call worms. Okay. I, uh, I joked about this last week in Adelaide, um, where I said, you know what? You're a worm. That's what you are. You're underground. You can't be seen, but you're doing amazing things. Mm. Who knew? Who mm. knew? that you were making holes in the ground so that the air could penetrate through, that the nutrients get to the places that they needed to be. And guess what? No one sees you, yeah, right? You're yeah. under, like you can't be seen. It's like, wow, without you, we wouldn't be alive. We need you, right? You digest, you digest the soil mm, mm. and you create what we need as nutrient for the plants that we then eat from. So part of the ecosystem, unknown, unseen, has Are some of the most important working everywhere. Do you know what I mean? It's like bees. Like we don't we don't think about bees, but if there were no bees in ten oh, years we'd be dead. Absolutely. 
and we it's, went it's like these crosses, right? We? I mean, yeah. we, we did that in London. We're yeah. like, oh my god, there are no bees left. What do we do? Disaster. What do we do? We're, let's gonna bring. We're gonna bring these gardens on top of buildings to have more bees. Yeah, you know. And glorious, I remember actually, at UCL, glorious thing to do. You know, and it's it's so interesting how we've moved away from nature. We've moved away from nature, thinking that we're separate from it, but we're not. We are nature. Everything that we everything that we eat that we do that we wear comes mm. from nature mm. and for some reason we've disassociated ourselves so now's the time to find these worms these people who are the connectors between they're the people who live in the liminal spaces mm. they're the people who live between disciplines they're the people who don't need to be a or b but are in the center mm. and they're the people who can translate they're the people who can connect individuals yeah it's amazing that are building these breathable cities right they're the people who you won't see using these open public urban commons that are creating spaces that we can come together mm. they're the unknown and just as uh, an architect called Jaime Lerner talks about from Brazil in his book urban acupuncture they're the people that inject energy into the city mm. right they're the people who design spaces that allow for others to come together there's another incredible architect called Jan Gale, urban planner, who's written incredible amounts of books. But he's, his work on just Times Square, his work on cities and making them come alive because there has been this massive movement in architecture and urban planning that you box people in. Mm. And now they're realizing that we, wanna, that we want to actually live outside. Perhaps we want to have a relationship with the outside world. That's right. Outside world being nature, mm. like bringing forests into the city. This is exactly what's happening with the, ta- the, the city hall, yeah. right? This is what's happening with the town hall. They're mapping out through 30 plus councils in Melbourne. Yeah. And what they're doing is finding out all of the green spaces and creating an an urban urban jungle. Mm, they no, want to no, know Geelong, where all these the forest spine. spaces are, and they the want to connect them up. Down you know, the, which down is the whole street. it's fascinating because if you were to look at, say, even Rio, it, it's all about these green fingers. It's mm. about these green spaces. It's mm. a it's a space in the center that you get a break, a breather, a time to replenish, a moment where you think, hmm, what is it? The bed, bath, and the bus. I think you'll need to go over to LA and talk to them about their golf courses because there are no parks in LA. I can't imagine how hard it must be to live over there to be a resident of LA. I was in Walking LA down the dirt recently. Tracks beside wow. the beautiful golf courses that are taxed at nothing. You know, if you listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating listen. But yeah, these huge uh, golf courses with hardly anyone using them in the middle of the city and no parks. No parts for any of the It's residents. interesting where ownership of the city comes from, right? It is, isn't I it? remember this um, this image of, I, I believe it was either Rio or Sao Paulo, where you've got beautiful swimming pool, uh, luxury apartments and houses, and then you've got this little line, like a bridge, like a, a kind of like a wall, and then you've got favelas. Yeah. You know, and it's like, the wow, the contradictions in society. Yeah. But it's a visual Which contradiction. Which is hard to stomach as and well. And now we look at that and we think, well, why does that exist? Yeah. And the inequality in the way that we're living. So that's where introductions to, um, you know, basic income or universal, like universal basic making, income. it yeah. was just basic income. It's like, where can we provide the minimum amount of, like the, the where is that line that we have passed? And exactly, every society exactly has we got this line. About the species, right? you know what's right and wrong. You right. look at these images and you think there's just something really right. wrong about this right. picture. And I was, uh, you know, in just the recent trip to Adelaide or the recent trip to LA, and I'm thinking, wow, people live a particular lifestyle. Some of this is their own choice. Some of this isn't. People in Birmingham who were in the same classes as, as me, um, same schools, same opportunities, 
are doing very, very different things to me. Yeah. So where am I different? Where are they different? Where are their choices leading them? Yeah. Where is that mindset that has led them? Exactly. I'm going to refer back to that book that Stephen Covey has written on the seven habits of highly effective people. If highly those effective. skills were taught to children from the beginning, wouldn't it be great to have that at school? What would what would the core values? I mean, this has mm. been my most exciting learning in the last two years. My core values and putting them into practice. Yeah. What are the core values of society? Because they have such an impact on your mindset and the decisions you make every day. And I talk about the decisions you make every day are the future you create for yourself tomorrow. Where are you going to spend your time doing that? Yeah. How are you going to prioritise that over another? Exactly. Well, listen, I know you're short of time today. So what I did want to ask is one of the final questions. What are the, what's your goal, say, for the next five years? What, what will be your out-of-the-park goal that you really love to achieve? Wow, my ultimate, ultimate would be... Your dream. To, like, my absolute dream. And if it happened in five years, I'd be, like, jumping for joy and you should totally... I'm big on exponential change You should the bring me back and we should have a <laughs> post-five years podcast. We will, we will. Right? What would be my ultimate goal in the next five years is to create a whole new dynamic a whole new economic dynamic. It is how can we live in harmony with nature, make it financially viable, make it creative, make us curious towards what we can do, innovate the way that we're living, create more than a hundred billion dollar industry on this. Yeah, like really, a trillion map dollar it out. industry. Yeah, let's get crazy. A trillion dollar industry on replenish as as a philosophy. Yeah, I giving back more than we I take am. Out. I am a follower of the cause. Mm. That's what I am. It's so a movement worth going for. I am a follower. All I want to do is I want to work towards this. And yeah. if other people want to join me, great. It's such a beautiful. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Mm. And I believe that it's happening right now. And mm. I can see it. Because as I move and shift around the world, I, I see these pockets of worms. And I'm like, wow, you guys don't know each other. And you're living around the corner in Adelaide. Let yeah. me connect you. It's the same for Melbourne, isn't it? I mean, we saw that yesterday. So listen, and also recently the World Economic Forum released an article in collaboration with Fortune magazine where 50 of the most successful women as ranked by Fortune share their best advice. Wow. I simply love that women are climbing up the ranks in a wide range of industries including tech, energy, defence, consumer goods, what have you. There are some amazing pieces of advice in there. What advice today would you give to young women out there wanting to make a difference in the world? So this is actually coming out in um, a piece that I just recently wrote for Wonder Woman. It's by Patty, who is a coach. She's done some amazing things online. You can find out about her work in The Entrepreneur. Okay. But it, the piece is a, a kind of a collaborate, like a, it's a collection of the different things that Wonder Woman would do, right? And the the little section that I have is about asking permission and I think I mentioned this permission when you ask for permission you're asking somebody else for the authority of the decision that you're taking mm. where is it at that moment in time where that permission should really only have been asked by you for yourself mm. give yourself the permission there have been a number of times where I come across life and I thought wow I never gave myself the chance to do that. Why? Who was I hoping was going to make that decision on my behalf? Mm. And why did I give that power to somebody else to what? tell me? No, thank you. Yeah. I will make that decision for me. Very powerful. So in a way, what you're saying is 
it's much better to ask for forgiveness. If at all. Than it's not as if you're doing anything wrong. No, that's you're true. You're making decisions for yourself. Yeah. You're giving yourself the permission to love. You're giving yourself the permission to follow your dreams. You're giving yourself your permission to pr put into practice your core values. How is that somebody else's decision? Mm, mm. It's your own. And it's your own responsibility to live the life of your choice. Mm. And to love that choice. And if you don't want it, change it. Yeah, and give yourself permission to do that. Give yourself the first, like firstly, give yourself the permission. Do it that has, first. It has been an absolute pleasure Thank you, Liz. seeing you today. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you again in the future. I'm definitely going to have you on again. I can't wait to, da, 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 to watch what you're doing <laughs> around the world. I'm not sure where you're going to now, but all the best with it. And Thank all you very the best much. with your movement replenish. I think it will just be incredible. I if can't people wait are to interested and they want to get online, Go they can come on our Facebook. Com. Yes, or they can get onto the Facebook page. And, you know, one thing that I love to do is the replenish pick of the day. Okay. It's not always daily I mean I, sometimes I kind of miss it but I like to schedule amazing things that people are doing so if oh. there are people who've done incredible things there yep. are products and services there are companies there are cool projects educational things send them put them onto the Facebook, Facebook so that there is one place that becomes a repository of amazing things that people are doing that, that are already great. in practice of it so that's replenish on a Facebook replenish page. earth on Facebook Fabulous. Thank you so much for coming. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing you and watching you in the future. Thank you very much for this opportunity.